All right, we are in 1 Thessalonians 5 tonight. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 9. If you still have a music sheet, get that to our very own Kendall. Connie, I mean, sorry. Adventures and Odyssey. Miss Kendall. Um, All right, 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to hear God's word and to receive it with thanksgiving and um, earnestness. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you that we get to call ourselves yours, your people, your holy ones, your sanctified ones, um, your saved ones, your chosen ones, your justified ones, and um, in the future, your glorified ones. We are thankful that we get to be among um, the people that you call your own. And we pray tonight that you would use um, this message through this messenger to bring about the spiritual good of your people tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In the counseling world, there is this helpful tool to help you get to the bottom of your spiritual problems. Now, for some of you, I'm already losing you. Man, David, this is your hook, and you're talking about a counseling world situation. I have no idea. Well, this this matters to you because you, like me, want to get to the bottom of your spiritual problems, too. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Uh, They call this wonderful, helpful counseling tool. Are you ready for this? The magic wand. That's right. Your own Pastor Steve himself has used the magic wand. I've heard him. I myself have used the magical wand several times on some of you. Some of you are ducking your heads right now in shame. You don't want to be known as the one that was used. Um, Anyway, the magical wand is nothing really that special. It's just a question framed in a certain way that really helps you grab at what your problem is. It's basically this. I say to you, hey... So if I had a magical wand here tonight, and I could make anything happen, if I could change something completely in your life, if I could make something go away, if I could make something come, if, if this one little thing, whatever it is, were to happen in your life or to not happen in your life, uh, what would that thing be? Ask yourself that. What, what, what would take all of my problems away if this thing was removed? all of my problems would evaporate. Or, maybe, think about it this way, what what do I want most? What do I perceive as what I need most in my life? My, My problem is that I don't have enough of this going on in my life. My problem is that God isn't doing enough of this in my life. If this was happening, everything would be fine. And then I wave my magical wand and your life is fixed forever. That's how it works in pastoral counseling, actually. No, it's just to, just to isolate and get to what you believe your problem is and more importantly, what you believe your solution is in situations. And what would you say? What would you say to that question? I know in this room there are a lot of situations, a lot of pressures, a lot of worries, and I'm sure also a lot of trouble. There's a lot of trouble in this room, even even in, in these seats. You guys are young, but you are not free of trouble and worry and anxiety. What is it in you that you need of, that you need, that you could use removed from your life? What, 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 would it, what would it take for joy to increase in your world? What would it take for happiness 
to appear in your life? What would be required for contentment to happen? What do you need in your life for contentment to happen? What do you need in your life or need to get out of your life for satisfaction to happen? Let me ask you this. What would it take for your life to be marked by and characterized by peace? Peace in your life. Burden-free, worry-free peace. What would I have to do with my magical wand to bring peace in your life tonight? Think about that. That'll tell you a lot about your life and a lot about what you're hoping in, what you're counting on, and what you believe to be the most important thing in your life. Now, I want to convince you tonight, I want to make a case to you tonight for something that you need, something that you should want in every situation of your life that you are facing. This thing is something that you should strive for and seek after. Regardless of what situation you are in, regardless of what problem you are in, and how much of that problem is your fault, this should be your goal. This should be your aim. This should be your quest. And after this thing, and we discover this thing, just buried and kind of hidden in our two verses for tonight in our series on best for last. And you remember what our series is. We're kind of just skipping the entire epistle altogether, and we're going right for the end, and we're saying, Paul, if you only have three verses to share with me, what have you been saying? I've not been paying attention the entire time. Please, share with me what you've been saying. I need your best for last message. Give it to me in two verses, Paul. And that's what we have here. And, and, I, and I love this idea because, once again, I said this last week, but my favorite part, my favorite part of a movie, my favorite part of a, of a, a musical symphony, my favorite part of a soundtrack is the end. That's when all of the parts come together. You guys were out here with these musical sheets working so hard to learn two lines. This takes a long time. But it will sound amazing when all of the parts are coming together. And, and all of these parts and the melodies and, and all of these things come together at the very end the most. Usually, at the end of a movie is when all the parts are playing together. And then that's kind of what we're saying here with the best for last, right? This is, this is Paul kind of summing it up. This is the benediction of Paul, and he's summing, summing up the message that he's been declaring so far in his letters. And just to remind you, a benediction is defined like this. A benediction is a responsive statement of prayer or praise that's aimed at two things. This is what I'm aiming at, and this is what I believe a benediction is aiming at. It's a responsive statement of prayer or praise aimed at two things. Number one, sin's expulsion. Removal from your life, from your heart. It's, it's aimed at sin's deadening, weakening, uh, mortification. Right? That is what these messages are aimed at. That sin will die in your heart more and more every week as you listen to these messages. And number two, not just sin's expulsion, but also sin's, or God's, exaltation. God's exaltation. That's what I'm aiming at through going through these benedictions. It, once again, these are statements, these are responsive statements of prayer or praise that are aimed at sin's expulsion and God's exaltation in your mind and heart. 
That's what we're going after. And tonight's benediction we find in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's amazing. This is one of my favorites. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this series, actually. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. This is the best for last from 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the benediction of 1 Thessalonians. It's bringing all of Thessalonians to a close with this triumphant word of God's sanctification power in your life. It's an amazing word, and I want to just share with you four words that you will quickly figure out are a lot more than four words, but four key words, four key words, not three, four words to help you unpack this idea of sanctification. So that's that's kind of our structure. Four words to help you unpack sanctification. The first word is urgency. Let's look at the urgency of sanctification. The urgency of sanctification. The year is somewhere in between AD 50 and AD 51, or Acts 17 through 18 in your Bibles. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one of Christ, has just been driven out of the city of Thessalonica by Jews of all people the people that should have received the gospel message of Jesus Christ with the most joy and eagerness and and thankfulness they are the ones kicking him out of Thessalonica not only that he is chased all the way from Thessalonica to Berea which is believe it or not 45 miles away from Thessalonica and he is chased all the way down to Berea by the same Jews. These guys did not like Paul at all because they're willing to walk, mind you, not drive, walk 45 miles, a couple day journey, just to make sure Paul was booking it out of Macedonia. Paul, of course, from there moves on to Athens in what you would know as is Greece today and then moves to Corinth, And before he leaves Athens to go to Corinth, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he is concerned about this young, fledgling church. I mean, if you were a church planner and you only had about a month of time with the church and you were kicked out and you had Jews that aggressive to destroy you, what's going to happen to this young, immature church? seems like a recipe for disaster and Paul is concerned about them perhaps, not because he doesn't trust in the power of God but because he loves these people and he is willing we're told to be left alone in Athens to go and send Timothy back to the Thessalonians and upon Timothy's return, and you, you kind of see him make note of this in Thessalonians 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Timothy returns, and Paul is delighted 
to hear of the Thessalonians' thriving faith. That is amazing. And it shows you, really it does show you, doesn't it? The power of God. The power of God. Those whom God saves, God keeps. And God nourishes and strengthens. And how does Paul respond now? Well, he responds by writing the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. And that gives you a little background information. But how does Paul respond in this letter? Well, he responds with love. He responds with thankfulness, with joy for this Thessalonian church. But he also responds with urgency. And this is where we get our key word from. Urgency. The urgency of of sanctification. You could break down 1 Thessalonians in two parts. Part 1 is chapters 1 all the way through 3. And this, um, I've stolen this title from a former teacher of mine, is Paul's thanksgiving and concern for the Thessalonians in light of his absence. So we see Paul showing his concern and also his thanksgiving for them because he is removed from them. And then... In chapters 4 through 5, we see Paul's urgency and admonishments in light of Christ's imminence. So you see the difference there? He's, he's, he's thankful and he's concerned because he's, he's been torn away from them. But then in the rest of the letter, he is urgent for their spiritual growth, for their sanctification. Why? Not because of his absence, but because of Christ's imminence. Christ is returning soon, Paul tells them, and he wants them to get ready, to have an urgency of sanctification. That's what we see in the letter of Thessalonica, or to the Thessalonians. Um, So if you were to ask Paul, all to say, if you were to ask Paul, Paul... What do you want most for a young, fledgling uh, believer, a young believer who's in a difficult situation? What do you want most? What do they need most? And we could direct this question even to you that are all sitting here. What do these students need most right now in their life? What would Paul tell you? He would say, urgency. You need to have an urgency for sanctification. Or he would say, Simply, what he says in 4 verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For, verse 3, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. And, and what, why, why does Paul have this urgency for you? Why does Paul want you to have this urgency? Well, it's because Christ is returning soon. It's because of Christ's imminence. And you see this in chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Nobody's going to be suspecting it. It's going to come when nobody's looking or counting on it. It's going to come suddenly. The Lord's return, as we like to say, is imminent. It could happen at any moment. 
And then notice also what he says in verse 6, speaking to believers. So then, let us not sleep as others do. He's, doing, he's speaking in a metaphor there to, to speak about how you live your life. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation for uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Notice how Paul connects those two things. Christ is coming, his return is imminent. He has not destined you for wrath, but he's destined you to obtain salvation. And what does that lead Paul to say? Be urgent about your sanctification, beloved. This is God's will for you. Let's define a few terms. Sanctification, to sanctify. Um, The word comes from a Greek word called hagiazo. The noun is hagias. Um, Maybe you have heard that word before. It is used in noun form to refer to saints or the holy ones. And then, of course, in the verbal form, which is what we have here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, to sanctify or sanctification. And that is what what it's talking about. What does this word mean? It means to basically set someone apart. To set someone apart for a certain work. But I would like to define it this way. A saint is someone who is set apart from sin. You're you're set apart from sin. You're removed from sin. And you are set apart to also be devoted to God. That is what it means to be sanctified. To be increasingly, progressively set apart from sin and devoted to God in holiness. Who is a sanctified one? Who... Who are these saints who are called to holiness? Well, I mean, first off, let me make an obvious point for you. Paul always refers to believers as saints. He refers to believers in every letter that he writes as saints. And believe it or not, to my Catholic friends, he is not referring to the graveyards in Rome or Corinth, or Philippi, or Ephesus. He's referring to living people. These people are saints. Living believers are saints, holy ones. And we also see in the New Testament that um, saints are called to holiness. You're holy ones that are called to holiness. Let's do a quick theology of sanctification, a quick, just a quick overview of what the Bible has to say about sanctification. These are kind of three tenses, the tenses of the saint, the past, the present, and the future of what it means to be a sanctified one. Number one, you have been sanctified. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you have been sanctified. Sanctified. You are positionally sanctified. You are, you could say it this way, presently sanctified. You are someone who has in the past been sanctified with an ongoing result of holiness. Where do we see this? Well, we see this in, in Romans 
We see this in Ephesians. We see this in Philippians. Once again, whenever Paul is addressing Christians, this is how he addresses them. Romans 1, verse 7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Hagias. In Ephesians 1, 1, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 1, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. How, how are these people called saints? Well, we, we see it revealed for us in, in Hebrews 10.10. 10. We have been sanctified, Hebrews tells us, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you see that? Do you notice that? Positionally, you have been sanctified through the offering of Christ. And then it says in Hebrews 10.14, By a single offering, he has perfected for all time. There's our idea of positional purification. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And you're going to say, you know what, that sounds a lot like another uh, theological word I know, justified. And you're right. It's another way of speaking about justification. But notice what it's saying here. It's talking about you and your relationship to holiness and sin. You are separated from sin positionally if you are in Christ Jesus. Your present perfect position, your present perfect position is is, is perfect, is holy in Christ Jesus. And notice, every Christian is positionally a saint. You, if you are in Christ Jesus, are even now, at this very moment, in these very seats, even after the week you had, and the thoughts you thought, a saint, a holy one in Christ Jesus. Notice, in case you're tempted to think, well, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, those were the good Christians. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and our Lord. Look at that. As a saint, you are devoted to good works, but notice this, those works are not what make you a saint. You are a saint, you are a holy one that becomes because you have been sanctified, does good works. You do these things because you are already holy, and you do these things because the Holy Spirit is in you, empowering holiness in your life. You are, one way to say it, positionally sanctified. There's another way that the Bible talks about sanctified. This is more of a future view. You will be sanctified. So not just that you have been sanctified, but you also will be sanctified. This is future, perfectly, experientially. A lot of you are like, yes, I'm a saint, but I sure do not feel like it. Well, one day you will be perfectly, experientially 
sanctified. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 talks about this. It says this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, notice this, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Take heart, saints. You are not the saint that you will be. Someday you will be perfectly, experientially sanctified, made holy. But there's another, there's a final tense in which you could kind of understand the way the Bible talks about sanctification. And this is perhaps the most common way, the one that you were probably expecting me to say the entire time. And you're wondering why I'm getting so long-winded getting to it. This is the present. You are being sanctified, the New Testament tells us. So, you have been sanctified, you will be sanctified, and you are being presently, progressively, imperfectly sanctified. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is talking about. This is also what 2 Corinthians 3.18 is talking about when it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. And this is also what 1 John 1.8-9 is talking about when it says, If we say we have no sin, that is, we have a Uh, We have a present perfection about us. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, this is a present ongoing activity, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You as a Christian, as a holy one, as a sanctified one, are continually, progressively pursuing sanctification in your life. And mark it very well. You pursue these things because you are already positionally made holy in Christ Jesus. And you pursue these things through the truth of God by the word of God. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You are one who is, will be, and is sanctified, a holy one. This is a precious truth, is it not? To think of yourself as a saint in God's eyes. To think of yourself as someone who will one day be transformed by the power of Jesus. By the power of Him who can subject everything to Himself. He is going to transform your lowly bodies to be like His glorious one. And you are, even in this very moment, being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. That is the three-part experience. This is a precious, glorious truth. But it also comes with a a sense of urgency, doesn't it? It does. Turn over to 1 John 2, verse 28. Let's see this urgency. 1 John 2, verse 28. You have been made holy by the blood of Christ. You hold citizenship in heaven with transforming power coming from Jesus. But you still have an urgency. Why? Because this imminence of Christ. Christ will come soon. Christ could come at any moment. You want joy, not sadness at His coming. You want anticipation, not anxiety at His coming. That's why 1 John 
2, verse 28 says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Notice there is an urgency. There is an urgency. I do not want to be ashamed at His coming. And I also eagerly await His coming because this in itself is a cause of purification, sanctification in my heart and in my life. This is the urgency of Paul's letter. Matter of fact, if you turn back over to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, you'll notice this, and I talked about this back when I was doing an overview on Thessalonians, but once he crosses that chapter 4, verse 1, he starts getting into application and commands, and he starts speaking faster and faster and faster. It's as if he has this sense that Christ is coming soon, and he wants to get in as many commands as he can, and then as he gets to the near end of the letter, they get shorter and quicker and faster. And in chapter 5, there's, there's one-word commands. It just gets really fast. He has an urgency in light of Christ's imminence. Um, That's the first word. Like I said, there'd be more than one word. Uh, Number two, second word, to help you understand sanctification, maybe. Uh, The aim of sanctification. Talk about this, the aim of sanctification. This is obvious, perhaps, Uh, where does the urgency fall? Well, we see this in chapter 5, verse 23. You. You and you completely. This isn't somebody else. This is those very ones that are called to be sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are called to become holy. And how much of you is God after for sanctification? Well, all of you. It says completely. May the God of peace himself completely sanctify you. That is totally. That is all the way. That is through and through. This is God's aim in your entire life. He is after all of you. And in case you're wondering what that means, he says that. Your whole spirit and soul and body, all of you, all of you, God is after in sanctification. Now, real quick question here. How much of you is you? He talks about you in three parts. You, you spirit you, you soul you, you body you. How many yous is you? Well, there's some people that take this to mean there's three parts of a person, meaning you are a soul, you are a spirit, and you are a body. And they would look to this passage as well as to Hebrews 4.12 that seem to suggest there's this distinction between soul and spirit. Um, soul is thought to be how you relate to other people, and spirit is thought to be how you relate to God. And then there's another view 
that was the trichotomist view, trichotomist view. The other view is the dichotomist view, two, the view that you are two, you are a material part, and then you are an immaterial part, you are a spiritual part, and you are a physical part. And I actually kind of favor this view. I feel like the Bible backs it up a little bit better. And I say this for a few reasons. Soul and spirit is often used in the Bible in parallel together, or as synonyms. They're kind of speaking of the same thing. The saints, the holy ones who are in heaven, are referred to both as saints and souls. Uh, there's also no real distinction in which, uh, which it is that relates to God, because both the soul and the spirit is said to relate to God. And once again, I would say this as well, Scripture often does this, where it packs a bunch of, bunch of words together to make an emphasis for something. So, so, for example, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Right? It's, it's packing all these things on to really emphasis, emphasize something. And this is what God is doing here as well, and Paul is doing as well. He is emphasizing all of you, completely. All of you, soul, spirit, every part of you. The immaterial and the material part. And this is very encouraging because God's aim here is every single aspect of you that sin corrupts and seeks to destroy. The body that is ravaged by sin and its consequences and cancer or sickness or something else like that, God is after to make holy. And the mind and the will and the thinking that is opposed to God or is so latched onto this world that it thinks after this world, God is after to sanctify you completely, all of you. Material and immaterial part. That's the second word, the aim of sanctification. Let's move quickly to the third word, the orientation of sanctification. What is the saint? What are you motivated by? What, what, are, what is driving you? What is thrilling you in your pursuit of sanctification? It says right here in verse 23, all of these things may come and that you may be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the constant pivot, by the way, of this letter. This is why Paul is so urgent, and I've said this before, because Christ is coming uh, again. Chapter 1, verse 10, Christ is coming, and it is spoken of as a time of deliverance, right? Wrath is coming, but he is going to deliver his saints, his holy ones. In chapter 2, verse 19, it is considered a time of boasting, where Paul is going to make a boast before the Lord in all of the ways in which he pursued the glory of Christ Jesus. Paul is somebody who is constantly motivated by the coming of Christ. He is constantly thinking, hey, what am I going to be proud of the moment I stand before Christ Jesus? What am I going to boast about before Christ Jesus? It is also a time of reunion. We see this in 3.13, right? So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our Lord, or for our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. It's going to be a tremendous time of reunion together with all of the saints. And then in chapter 4, 15 through 18, perhaps the best part, it's going to be a time of presence. It's when Christ is going to come, bring the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, to be with him. And as it says in verse 18 of chapter 4, or sorry, verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord. Think about that. 
Think about that glorious truth. You will always be with Jesus. There will never be a time without Him. You will have complete leadership. You will have complete sufficiency. You will have complete joy. You will have complete love. He will be with you forever by His presence. That is what the return of Christ will bring. Christ's continual, persistent, steadfast presence with you in your life. That is the orientation of sanctification. You are pivoting around the return of Christ. Final word, the power, the power of sanctification. The title of this message is The Hope in God's Power for Sanctification. So you have a hit here that I'm getting near to what I was driving at the entire time. Matter of fact, it's finally here that we get to the benediction of this benediction. So far, we haven't been talking much about benedictions. Here at the end of the letter, Paul must let out this hope-filled benediction of praise and prayer to God for these saints. And what is that praise and prayer? Well, let's connect the dots, right? We already talked about this. 4 verse 3, what is the will of God? Your sanctification. That is God's will, that you be set apart, that you be set free from sin, and that you be set towards God in devotion to Him in holiness. That is a daunting thing to hear, though. This is the will of God for me? My sanctification? Well, I'm failing at that every single day. What hope is there in in me fulfilling God's will if that is God's will. But notice, this is God's will, but notice what also is the instrument of His will in your life. It is God Himself. Notice what He says. Connect it again. This is the will of God, your sanctification. How does He bring it about? Verse 23, May the God of peace Himself. Notice, it's not somebody else. It's not ultimately pinning on you. It's not on some angel that he has entrusted with your sanctification. It is God himself through the person of the Holy Spirit in your life that will bring this to pass. And it is also God who is faithful. Verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Your sanctification is not entirely dependent on you. It involves you. It demands you. It requires of you. But it is ultimately dependent on the faithfulness of God to see it through. And He is faithful. He is the definition of faithfulness in the world. I love Romans 8.30. It says this, Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Quick little grammar note, though. Uh, That is all spoken in past tense. And Paul's essentially saying, if it's up to God and His faithfulness, it's all as good as done in your life. You are already glorified because of God's faithfulness. This is 
It is God who is faithful. And notice also in verse 23 and verse 24, it is the very God who calls you. This God who wills your sanctification is the very one who works powerfully for your sanctification. And that is an extraordinarily encouraging thought if you are a Christian who has this desire in you to please him, it is God himself who is working for my sanctification. Remember that magic wand? And I asked you, what do you most want? What do you most need? What would turn your life around? Regardless of what situation you were in, if this happened in your life, everything would be well. Regardless of the situation, this is what you're pursuing. Regardless of the problem, regardless of how much fault it is, this is your quest, this is your goal. What is that word? Well, if Paul was saying, it would be sanctification. This is always my goal, number one. How can I be sanctified in this situation? How can I pursue Christ and follow Him with the assurance of all that God is on my side faithfully for me? This is my goal in every situation, regardless of how difficult it is. How can I grow in Christ-likeness through this time? That's what Paul would say, but let me prove it to you. Let me show you that this should be your goal. This should be what you want. This should be what you're after. Let's make one final note about why sanctification should always be your goal. Yes, It's all your, number one, it's all you will care about one second after you appear before Christ. Yes, it's all you will care about a thousand years into the millennium. Yes, it is what God is most concerned with whenever he is dealing with you. If you want to understand why God is doing the things that he's doing in your life, it probably has to do with his will for your sanctification. And yes, it is the end for which Christ died to sanctify you, to make you holy. But why should you want this? Well, Paul gives us a hint. And it is in the way he describes. He describes God's saving work. If, if he was to describe God's saving work towards you and the result that it produces in your life in one word, what would that word be? It would be peace. Notice what he says, right? Now may the God of peace. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the God who produces peace. And he's not bringing this up to suggest that the Thessalonians are somehow in, in conflict with one another. I don't think that's why he is the God of peace. This is the result, the glorious benefits and privileges of God's saving work in your life. And and this is the result of sanctification in your life. You have God's peace in your life. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of the problem, you have the God of peace who produces peace. We see this in chapter 1, verse 1. Peace is the result of mercy and grace in your life. And we see here in chapter 5, verse 23, peace is the product that comes from God through sanctification in your life. He wills it, and He desires sanctification in you because He is after peace in your heart and in your life. 
And that is something you can trust Him with, saints. That is something you can believe in Him, hope in Him for. This is producing sanctification, and the result of sanctification in my life and yours is peace. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this evening, and we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would be clear in our minds and in our hearts as we go to small groups now. But we do pray, as we lift our voices up to sing one last time, that we would glorify you through through these words and these lyrics from our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.